BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Well, we are now three years into the presidency of Donald J. Trump. And if you think it's been a wild ride, (laughs) you're right. And nobody documents that wild ride better than two Pulitzer Prize winning reporters from the Washington Post, Phil Rucker and Carol Lenning. In their blockbuster new book, A Very Stable Genius, number one on the New York Times bestseller list, they take us back through every major event of the Trump administration so far. So wild, so unlike anything we've ever seen before, so frightening, it's a wonder we've even survived it. Well, what are the highlights and the lowlights? We sat down with Phil Rucker and Carol Lenning in their offices at the Washington Post. Carol and Phil, it's great to see you. Thanks for uh, inviting us to come over to the Post. Of course, Bill. So, first of all, congratulations, number one on the New York Times bestseller list. That's, that's um, BFD, as Joe Biden would say, <laughs> right? Yeah, we're pretty thrilled. Uh, I was impressed that you knocked uh, Educated off the no- top of the list, and also Michelle Obama's book, Becoming. So that was a, a real score. We've got a whole year to go to keep up with First Lady. <laughs> That's right. A very stable genius. Where'd the topic, uh, the title come from, Carol? Well, we had we were nearly done with the manuscript and the editing, and Phil and I had uh, been asked to think hard and long about the title. And of course, you always put off the hardest thing to the end. Um, we both independently, as we were talking, started to talk about that word choice of his. And at first we felt that it might be a little edgy and that we had a little bit of worry about that. But we also realized the more and more we focused on our work that we wanted to use his words to stress test his own definition of himself, uh, hold it up against a mirror and, and hold it up to the people who knew him best we did more than 200 interviews. Um, forgive me, we interviewed more than 200 people who were close to him, senior advisors, former and current um, top-level officials in his administration, good friends. And n- not to a person, but in large measure, they did not find him to be a very stable genius <laughs> and did not describe him that way. But what does it say, Phil, to you that he describes himself or that anybody would describe themselves as a very stable genius, which he said in Quebec, right? He has said it a a number of times. The first time he used this phrase to describe himself came in January of 2018, about a year into the presidency. There was a national dialogue underway at that time about his mental acuity, his psychological health, his, his very fitness for the job. And he defended himself by saying, I'm not only a genius, but I'm a very stable genius. And he's, of course, used that term at least four additional times since then. You know, the people that we talked to for this book pointed out that anyone who's a stable genius would would not call him or herself (laughs) that. Uh, But it does speak to how, you know, Trump is so focused, and and we show this in the reporting in the book, so focused on his self-image 
and what people think of him and establishing his supremacy. He thinks he's smarter than uh, all of his intelligence briefers. He thinks he knows more about the military than the generals mm-hmm. do. He thinks he knows more about the economy than uh, Gary Cohn did and, and so on and so forth. You know, so I don't don't take this the wrong way, but um, I loved your book. I loved the book. How can we take uh, that just, the wrong way? <laughs> I know. Well, because just before I read this book, I read a book called I Hear I Heard You Paint Houses, which is the book that the Irishman is based on. Mm. And I found them very similar in this sense that the Irishman is just one mob hit after another. And your book is just one presidential outrage after another over the first three years. And the question I have is reminding myself of all the things that Trump has done and said, I find myself surprised that he's still there. Does it surprise you that he's survived these three years that have been pretty wild? It's one of the themes. Or that that we've survived. (laughs) And our institutions, right? Yeah. Um, uh, it's one of the themes that Phil and I found ourselves sort of surprised by, but but really understanding better as a result of uh, archaeologically re-excavating this, these scenes that we reported in real time for the Washington Post. We dig deeper into them, and the theme that we come back away with is this is a president who increasingly drives the grown-ups out of the room, the people who wanted to give him good counsel and help a novice public servant, someone with no political experience, no governing experience, those people, those guardrails are gone. And with each um, sort of chapter, the president increasingly views himself as a man who is the best at making these decisions. He doesn't need all these other people. And he's also increasingly emboldened. He beat you know, a criminal investigation that found substantial mm-hmm. evidence that would normally get another person thrown in jail, convicted and thrown in jail for obstruction of a criminal probe. He beat that. And with time, he became more emboldened. Literally the day after the sort of coda for the special counsel investigation, he picks up the phone and asks a foreign leader for a favor in a domestic political election for his own benefit. And he beat, you know, from he would use these words himself, he beat the rap of the claims that he had behaved improperly or illegally in seeking Zelensky's help in investigating Joe Biden and his son. With with the idea that passed his prologue, he's just increasingly more and more unshackled and confident in his own decision-making, no matter how many norms it busts. Right. So, I mean, think about that. As you point out, he, the Mueller investigation, as serious as it was and as serious as the findings were in the report, he just basically walks and then impeached. Yes, he has been impeached, but the Senate acquittal. And so, Phil, he must see looking forward that he's, in fact, able to do as president whatever he wants. Yeah, you know, our reporting has shown that over these last three years, he's increasingly viewed himself as above the law and, you know, not subject to accountability the way a, a mortal being might be. Uh, he thinks as president he can he can do as he pleases, and he has faith that the Republicans in Congress and, and those that control the Senate are going to have his back no matter what it is that he does. And that's been proven uh, not only in the Mueller investigation and through the impeachment proceedings, but think of all the other norms he's shattered or uh, violations of what would traditionally be seen as the public trust mm-hmm. uh, that he has had and, and gotten away with, or the racist comments that he's made, or the misogynistic 
uh, moments in his presidency where he's not really faced uh, much consequence other than, you know, half of the country disapproving <laughs> of his performance. Uh, and, and so going forward, I, I anticipate that mindset to continue um, and even grow uh, because of the unwillingness of, of Republicans in the Senate to stand up to him, Mitt Romney being the, the exception, of course. You interviewed, you mentioned, Carol, over 200 people. Is Donald Trump one of them? Donald Trump, as we say in the uh, beginning of the book, um, was interested in sitting down for an interview with us uh, and actually told Phil in a pretty memorable moment for for us that he viewed Phil as a very fair reporter. He wanted a serious book done, and he was looking forward to talking to Phil. Um, Phil took the opportunity of a phone call back from the president to explain to him about our book, and, and that's where he made this offer. But the, as time went on and the war with the media, but especially with the Washington Post, escalated, uh, President Trump withdrew from that offer and through AIDS, declined and declined and declined to talk to us. And we're very disappointed and sad. We would have loved to hear uh, his explanation rather than everyone else's around him for why he did what he did. Uh, have you gotten any phone calls since the book came out? Not from the president. We've gotten a couple tweets from the president. He's not pleased uh, with the book and has attacked me and Carol personally, but uh, we've not spoken with him directly. Right, which... Uh, you, you might, ex I guess you expected that those... It's exactly what you'd expect. Um, but it's worth pointing out, Bill, that even though we didn't talk to the president for the story, we did everything we could in our journalistic power to fact check the scenes and the dialogue and the actions that are attributed to him uh, in the book with multiple sources, with a review of diary entries, calendar entries, in one case of a video recording. Um, we, we really tried to give him the benefit of the doubt and, and make sure that everything that we printed in this book was was the truth as best we knew it. Well, one thing that many things that struck me, one of one of them I wanted to ask you about is, and Carol, you alluded to this earlier, that um, from your reporting, and when you put it all together here, it's stunning to me to see how many good people, people with a pretty good reputation in this town, went to work for Donald Trump and had their careers destroyed and are no longer there. I mean, I did a little list just off the top of my head, and I'm sure there's some here that I'll miss, but Sean, in no particular order, Sean Spicer, Reince Priebus, Anthony Scaramucci, Steve Bannon, Don McGahn, Michael Flynn, John Kelly, James Mattis, Rex Tillerson, Kirsten Nielsen, Jeff Sessions, Gary Cohn, H.R. McMaster, John Bolton. Who's left? I mean, who, who, about the people around him, what does this say? You know, sometimes there have been moments where and it felt like it was an episode of The Apprentice, you're fired, you know, <laughs> almost like it was exciting to end each show with you're fired. What we found was that a lot of the people who tried to explain to the president, this is illegal, or this is worrisome, or this is not the way the U.S. government works, those people um, got a pink slip or a tweet in the middle of the night. And increasingly, the people around the president view their mission as telling him yes. Just as a comparison, we are told by multiple people that John Kelly often took the president privately aside and said, Mr. President, you had this idea today that is not going to work. We are not going to do that. There's a scene in the book where John Kelly um, tells the president, if you want to give your son-in-law a clearance over the objections of the career public servants who mm -hmm. know how to do this, you're going to have to do it yourself. I'm not doing it. So you see what happened to John Kelly. 
Now, fast forward to our current scenario that is at the center of the impeachment investigation and ultimately the House's impeachment of President Trump. Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney was willing and, and comfortable agreeing to block the aid to Ukraine that Ukraine was relying upon to save its soldiers in a battle with Russia, was willing to withhold it even though his office and his lawyers were getting warnings from the Government Accountability Office that withholding that aid was illegal. But that's what Donald Trump wanted, and that's what Mick Mulvaney gave him. Right. Um, but the one thing that Donald Trump demands, what we're told, more than anything else of people around him, is loyalty. Loyalty. It sounds like it's a one-way street. <laughs> it is, and it has been for years now. Uh, you know, the, the guiding principle of this administration is loyalty, as you point out, but it's not loyalty to the country, which is what we've seen in past administrations. It's loyalty to Trump the man, Trump the brand. Uh, Trump, the president. Mm. And, you know, he has zero tolerance for any kind of personal or political betrayal. And once somebody betrays him, and it, it's in his estimation, you know, what that betrayal might be, for example, Steve Bannon, uh, appearing on the cover of Time magazine was an act of betrayal uh, to President right, yeah. Trump. So, you know, Trump will internalize that and, and turn against people and, and shuts them out and, and pushes them out of the government. There's no tolerance for that. But he doesn't provide the same loyalty back. So there are people who've served him for years uh, and acted loyalty, loyally to him uh, and do not get the same kind of personal loyalty in return from the president. Is there anybody, did you find anybody around him today who's willing to say, Mr. President, you're wrong, like John Kelly did? I think some yeah. others that you that you mentioned did. Gary Cohn, you cannot I do this as... Or even, I think, at one point, Jeff Sessions said, no, we yes. can't do that. I mean, you think about all the people who said no, and they are gone. In our reporting, uh, you know, that happened to Kirsten Nielsen. It happened mm -hmm. to Jeff Sessions. Um, what were their crimes? They tried to remind him that the things he was proposing to do were illegal uh, or unethical in the, in the case of Jeff Sessions. But, you know, in terms of today, there are surely instances where people are trying to talk the president out of some of his more uh, impulsive, rash decisions. I know for a fact that the president very much wanted to get rid of some of these National Security Council staff, but he was encouraged not to do it until after the acquittal or the Senate trial, whichever came first, mm -hmm. after the Senate trial was completed. And indeed, minutes after his acquittal, that is the first thing he did. I understand um, how um, people could be treated that way who work for the president in the White House. Um, I had heard about this before, but until I read your reporting, I must admit I was shocked by the meeting at the Pentagon you talk about, where he went with James Mattis was there, of course, mm -hmm. and Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, um, and unloaded on the generals. Phil, tell us about that. Yeah, so this was a harrowing moment in the first year of the presidency, July of 2017, about six months in, and the defense secretary, the secretary of state, Gary Cohn, the economic advisor, all were concerned with Trump's lack of knowledge about the world and lack of understanding about our alliances and military deployments. So they arranged a tutorial in a room at the Pentagon called the Tank. It, it, it's really a sacred sanctum space, the conference room for the Joint Chiefs of Staff where decisions of war and peace are made. They get the president there. They start doing a tutorial, a slideshow, to show him where we have troops around the world, why we're a part of NATO, 
you know, underscoring the importance of different alliances and, and deployments. And Trump was impatient. He didn't like being lectured to or, or schooled in that environment. And he started bellowing. Because he knew it all. <laughs> he thought he knew it all. So he started barking and bellowing at the generals and, and at the other civilians who were around the table. He said the war in Afghanistan was a loser war. Uh, he said that the generals were a bunch of dopes and babies. And the thing that really got people going was he said, I wouldn't go to war with you people. Those are the president's words. Uh, nobody stood up to him except for Rex Tillerson, the secretary of state. And, and after that meeting concluded, uh, Tillerson was overheard in a hallway telling some of his colleagues that the president was an effing moron. It was the end of their relationship. But even worse was the fact that this is the commander in chief uh, disrespecting the high brass of the military, uh, not really showing a patience for understanding his responsibilities as president. And these are the very people that he would have to rely upon to lead uh, the United States into war in the future. It is stunning that none of the generals fought back or challenged him. Did you find that? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, uh, Phil describes it so well. Although he's the commander in chief, maybe, maybe I'm misreading the military code, if you will. There were there were people in the room who talked to Phil and to me who said that the thing that was so chilling was the silence, um, but not just from the flag officers and generals. Mike Pence said nothing. He was a sort of a mm. wax figure, as described by some people. A woman appeared to be crying and bending her head forward to co- sort of conceal what was happening in her eyes. And Rex Tillerson, as told to us by witnesses there, was looking at Mattis like his eyes boring into Mattis's head. They're very close friends, but Matt- Mattis wasn't saying anything. He had his head bowed as well. And finally, Tillerson just said, well, I guess... In his in his in his head, he's thinking. I guess these officers can't buck their commander in chief. I'm going to have to say something. And he was, you know, what he stood up and said. He said again in another meeting in December, uh, when the president was also lambasting the officers in the Situation Room, talking about how they needed to make money on these troops and mm-hmm. start charging foreign governments for the bases that we have there that ultimately keep us safe, but Donald Trump wanted other countries to pay for the safety they provided those regions. And uh, Tillerson stood up with his back this time to the president and said, you know, I didn't put on a uniform, but I know people who did, his father, his uncle, his great uncle, and they don't put it on to make a buck. They do it to protect our freedom. And uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, Dunford called Tillerson later that night after that meeting and said, thank you for taking the body blows for us. I'll never forget it. Carol, Phil, hold on just a second so we can take a quick break and uh, then we'll resume our conversation about a very stable genius. Today's podcast with Phil Rucker and Carol Lending brought to you by the American Federation of Teachers. Yes, the good men and women of the AFT under President Randy Weingarten a real powerhouse in the American labor movement. Founded in 1916, the AFT today represents 1.7 million members in over 3,000 locals nationwide. Teachers of America from K-12 through through 12th grade and higher education as well. We salute our nation's teachers, thank them for the difference they make in our classrooms every day, and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? 
good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's home equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. And we're back here at the Washington Post with Phil Rucker and Carol Lennig, authors of A Very Stable Genius, Donald Trump's Testing of America, number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Another thing in your reporting that struck me, uh, not only all the people that have come and gone, um, is one thing we were told about Donald Trump, and he touted when he was running for president, is he was the dealmaker. He was the ultimate best dealmaker. Uh, again, in my notes, I've, I'm sure I forgot a couple, but I just noted North Korea, a new Paris Agreement, a new Iran Agreement, a new Affordable Care Act, this prisoner exchange between President Erdogan, uh, and all of these are deals that as you report, fell apart. They never happened. Exactly. I mean, did he ever make, really make a deal? You know, the one the one deal that, that he would claim credit for that was just recently passed was the new, uh, the new NAFTA, the USMCA, the trade deal with Mexico and Canada. Of course, critics of the president are quick to point out that it's not all that different from the original from the, NAFTA. From the old NAFTA, It just right. has different branding. Uh, but look, this is a president who talks a big game about his ability to make deals and negotiate and leverage what he sees as his personal charisma and sort of one-on-one -on -one charm uh, to extract benefits from, from mm -hmm. foreign countries and, and has most often not delivered. Uh, either he's been stymied uh, by other forces or he's completely miscalculated uh, his counterparts. In the case of North Korea, he thought he could get across the room from Kim Jong-un and somehow convince North Korea to abandon its nuclear program, which it has spent decades developing. And of course, that was not to be the case. And, and Kim Jong-un seems to have gotten the better, 
the better hand so far uh, out of the president. They're continuing to build uh, nuclear weaponry in North Korea and show no signs of backing down. Right. Uh, and a, a kind of an extension of that, I guess, is the, 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 the failure to make the deals, uh, particularly North Korea maybe is the one that we, that we think of most of all, is that, in, in at least in, in the case of North Korea and in the case of Vladimir Putin, the president actually said, I believe them. I believe what they say over our people, right? With Putin, he said they didn't yeah. interfere in the 2016 election. I believe Kim Jong-un said, I knew nothing about outer warm beer. Uh, hard to believe. Uh, but that's what he said. So I believe him. What, what is this affinity with, for autocrats? I mean, this almost adoration of autocrats. You know, President Trump is now on his fourth national security advisor, but his second national security <laughs> advisor, H.R. McMaster, confided to many people that we interviewed that the, he could not make heads or tails of why the president seemed to want so badly to get in good with Vladimir Putin. It actually bothered HR, who has studied that region of the world very closely. And he kept saying, I just don't know why he wants this bromance, but he does. And it is interesting that, that the allies who have served us so well and have been there for us through thick and thin, including in, in politically, in really difficult and stressful um, military battles, they're people he discards as weak mm -hmm. because they are genteel or perhaps diplomatic in the way they say things. But the autocrats, he seems to really want to cozy up with. There was one person who told us that when the president hears Erdogan's voice on the phone, he seems to be very, very happy and admiring, almost as if Erdogan has this sort of deep Hitlerian voice. Uh, the deal he, he, forgive me, the can I say one thing about Putin? That moment in Helsinki is actually one of the rare moments when the president has to sort of eat his own words. It's one of the times he actually faced consequences because that moment was so uh, galling to Republicans, him saying he believed Putin over the intelligence agencies, that, you know, Putin left that meet. and forgive me, Trump left that meeting feeling victorious and as if the press conference had been brilliant, got mm -hmm. on Air Force One to fly home, thought he looked so strong to the world and the master deal maker. But then on Air Force One, his staff start to gently, quietly come to him and explain the Internet is blowing up with comments from all sorts of leading Republicans saying this is unacceptable. This is not presidential. Uh, this is dangerous. And there's these Republicans are so senior, not just John McCain, many others, that the president then has to eat his words and uh, say that he misspoke, even though he obviously did not. Right. Um, another thing, and here we are at the Washington Post, where um, Glenn Kessler keeps track of the presidential misstatements, or shall we call them lies. I don't know what the latest number is. I think it's over 16,000. That's right. Um, and yet, Phil Carroll, he gets away with it. And does he even know that he's lying at this point? What did you, what do people tell you? You know, you're, you're right that it's an extraordinary number of lies, misstatements, falsehoods, exaggerations. I, I, just meant, I, I Growing up, right, a little older than you are, I remember growing up thinking the president of the United States never tells a lie. And, like, it was a big deal when Dwight Eisenhower was caught saying a U-2 plane did not fly over Europe, right? I mean, yeah. and that was a big 
16,000 compared to one? George Washington and the cherry tree. <laughs> there you go. I'm sorry, Phil. Yeah. Oh. Well, it's a different time. And, you know, this is a president who, who, in a way, sort of lives in a fantasy sometimes. He believes his own reality. Uh, he makes up his own facts. He, uh, he lies with abandon, and he doesn't really care what the fact checkers have to say. And the reason that he does it so much and can get away with it so much is because his supporters don't care either. Tens of millions of people around the country could care less whether he has one Pinocchio or four Pinocchios by the Washington <laughs> Post fact checker. They they believe in him. Um, they believe in the intensity with which he communicates and, and claims to be fighting on their behalf. And without any consequences from the voters or from uh, the people in his own party, Trump continues to do this. And the fact checker count, by the way, is so high. But the other thing to keep in mind is it's been increasing at a greater pace oh, in the yeah. third year of the presidency. So he is lying uh, more frequently now than he did in the first two years. I, uh, at one point, double-checked because I read a sentence in the book that was did not have quotes around it. So it's the two of you speaking about the midterm elections. Uh, actually, it's on page 311. And you say that uh, the Trump's behavior... Uh, coming into the midterms of 2018, amplified the ugliest, his ugliest characteristics as president. What did you mean by that? And what does that say that we could expect in 2020? Some of the president's ugliest characteristics are the ones that um, make parents concerned about how they're going to, um, you know, set up role models for those children. You know, the ugliest uh characteristics of any person. It's not just of the president telling the truth straight out without hype, without a hyperbole. Those are wonderful characteristics. Um, being gentle and kind with your adversaries and uh, disagreeing with them without vilifying them. Also, treating our military as a actual uh, group of patriots that serve us and protect us, again, allow us to sleep at night safely instead of a political prop. And in those three ways, the president entered that election cycle um, definitely as an ugly person that a lot of parents probably wouldn't want their children to emulate. And I guess we could expect just more with um, the Mueller thing and the acquittal behind him coming into 2020. Yeah, and, you know, at the end of the midterms in 2018 specifically, what we were getting at there was was Trump was out on the campaign trail playing uh, to the most sort of racist and xenophobic among his followers. There were, was a lot of language he used around illegal immigration and about black people. Uh, and, and really, even with some of the advertising that his campaign put out in, in, on digital platforms, um, created a very corrosive tone to the final hours of the campaign. And we should expect that again this time. It's the way he closed out the 2016 campaign. It's the way he helped Republicans mm -hmm. keep the Senate in 2018. It's probably going to be his strategy to seek re-election. In your reporting about the workings of the White House, how important is the role of Jared and Ivanka? <laughs> Are they, it appears that they're, into everything, and maybe the two most powerful people in the White House? Is that an overstatement? They, 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 they weave in and out of your book. 
I think it might be too strong a statement to say they're among the, that they're the most powerful people in the administration, but they certainly are powerhouses for sure. And especially in the first year and a half, first two years of this presidency, they had the carte blanche to walk in and out of whatever meeting they wanted to, to the great annoyances of the chiefs of staff, whichever one was in charge at the time. They also posed a real problem for the legal team that was representing the president during the Mueller investigation because they would sort of learn little bits of information in all of these far-flung meetings that they were attending, and they would also then share that with other people that were witnesses or appeared to share that. So that had the impression of potentially tainting the witnesses, if you will. Mm -hmm. There was another great concern, which is that... um, Neither of them had a lot of experience in the areas in which they were deciding to hold court, uh, especially Jared. And, you know, most recently, Jared's been ridiculed to some degree for saying that he brings a freshness to the topics such as Middle East peace because he's not um, entrenched in all of the old experiences of everyone going back. Uh, you know, to the days of George Mitchell and Bill Clinton. He, he Instead, he's read lo- a lot of books, and uh, he says that where some people see problems, he sees solutions. People think that is incredibly naive, including some of the people at the negotiating table with him. That's been a problem. At the very beginning of this presidency, several senior aides warned the president, don't let these people come in because they're your loved ones, they're your family members, And no one's going to be able to tell them what to do because they'll be too afraid to do it to a member of your family. And that's true, isn't it? They are the survivors because they're family. They'll be there as long as Trump is there. That's right. And and the biggest miscalculation that some others in the administration made was to try to get crosswise with Jared Mm -hmm. and Ivanka and to try to cut them out or or hurt them internally because Trump is always going to prioritize family and blood uh, over anybody else. So just one final question. Um, when having written this book, um, and again, extraordinary, extraordinary work, congratulations again. When you look at what others have done writing about the Trump administration or on television or radio talking about the Trump administration, um, do you think the media has covered the Trump administration fairly or negatively or given them too much of a break overall? What's your take on how the media has covered the Trump administration. I would like to hear what Phil thinks, too. I, um, My impression is that— We know what Donald Trump, I'm sorry, thinks about the coverage, right? <laughs> yeah, so. but he's addicted to our coverage. You know, he says he canceled his subscription, but we see him holding up our paper. He, <laughs> you know, And he tweets at us about stories we've written calling— Phil a nasty lightweight and me a lowlife after he allegedly, again, canceled our subscriptions for stories he didn't like before. But to your question, Donald Trump is a genius in his mastery of his megaphone. He is a master in marketing himself. And he has had a bright, shiny ball. He's been waving in all of our faces every morning, whether it's his tweet or his comments in the driveway. He has kept us all focused um, to a a large extent on what he has to say, the message he has for the day. Every White House reporter has to cover what the president says, but sometimes that that media savvy that he has keeps too many of us distracted from what's really going on in his his administration. And I think the, the news media has done an amazing job 
but we've had to contend with that additional element of the shiny ball. There are everyday, Phil, aren't there, things that are happening in the administration, whether it's at HUD or at Interior or State or wherever. Take the expansion of the travel ban mm -hmm. if you will, mm -hmm. that don't get the coverage that they normally would because we're all focused on Trump's latest tweet. That's right, although I think a number of organizations have really risen to the occasion the last few years, and, um, you know, in an unbiased way, I would suggest <laughs> uh, the Washington Post I is among them, it just concur. in terms of, of staffing up and having the resources to not only cover the, the dramas and the crises of the moment inside the West Wing, but to really uh, hold all of all of public officials and all of the administration accountable and, and tracing what they're trying to do uh, in the darkness without people knowing uh, and bringing a lot of that to light. That's been essential, especially these last three years, and I think that'll continue throughout the presidency. Well, one of the best things that Marty Barron has done is uh, give the two of you time to write uh, a very stable <laughs> genius in Thank the middle you. of all of the rest of the work that you're doing. Thanks, Bill. We'll share this Donald with Donald J. Trump's <laughs> testing of America. We're still being tested. Philip Parker, Carol Lenning, thanks so much for joining us. Thank Congratulations you, Congratulations again. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And that's a wrap for today's edition of the Bill Press Pod. A big thank you to Phil Rucker and Carol Lenning. And thanks to all of you for joining us. It's so good to have you on board. And remember, three quick little items if you haven't already done so. Please subscribe to the Bill Press Pod by going to wherever you're listening to this podcast. Find the Bill Press Pod, click on subscribe, and you are in. While you're there, give us a good rating, maybe a five-star rating to make us feel real good. And please, for your sake and ours, follow me on Twitter, at Bill Press Pod, at Bill Press Pod. You'll go for me probably a couple of times a day, and you'll get advance notice of every new podcast on the Bill Press Pod. So uh, hang in there, stay strong, and we'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Bill Press Pod.